This podcast series has been made possible through an exclusive sponsorship from SA's number one nano-influencer platform, The Salt. Most brands have a communication line to their existing customers, but not a way to get them to have additional positive brand conversations. The Salt solves the problem by identifying brand fans and getting them to talk more about their positive brand experiences. The Salt have a database of over 140,000 registered brand fans and in-depth information on each to perfectly match your brand to the right influencers. Reach out to them now and see what they can do for you. Let's talk digital. We are at the cutting edge of digital tweaks, changes, transformation. A local digital marketing podcast. Conversing with industry experts and doing excerpts about the exceptional. Hosted by Audrey Naidu. Sit back, relax, enjoy your I'm really looking forward to what's coming up in South Africa in the next couple of months and years. How's it everyone? Welcome back to Let's Talk Digital with myself, Audrey Naidu. According to Augustine Full, a leading global expert on ad fraud, digital ad fraud is an iceberg because we only get to see a portion of it above the surface. But the bulk of the iceberg and ad fraud remains hidden. Hackers are experts at finding loopholes, circumventing defenses and remaining hidden so that they can continue to make money at our expense. If the ad fraud detection vendors you're using for your digital campaigns is only looking for invalid traffic, you are just seeing the fraud that's on the surface and missing the rest of it, which is potentially much larger than you think. Even though everyone has heard of ad fraud, some still don't believe it's much of an issue. Others think the fraud doesn't affect the campaigns and still others justify their continued media buying despite the fraud because they're getting low prices. Today we speak to leading local experts in the industry, Nevo Hades and Chris Roper, to shed some light on the subject. Welcome to the podcast, Nevo and Chris. Good to have you with us. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Audrey. Yeah, guys, before we get started, uh, firstly, I wish to thank you for making time to be here today. Uh, I mean, this is a big subject that we're going to tackle. Um, But before we get started, maybe a bit of yourselves and an intro. We'll start with you, Chris. Sure. Thanks, Audrey. Um, So my name is Chris Roper. I'm the Deputy CEO for an organization called Code for Africa, which is a a pan-African organization. Um, does a whole bunch of rather sprawling things. Um, So we're in about 21 African countries uh, in terms of actual staff on the ground. Um, We work across a range of things. And I mean, that's what's kind of interesting for this discussion. So my background is that I, uh, before joining Code for Africa, I was at the editor-in-chief of the Mail and Guardian. And before that, I was editor-in-chief of 24.com. So I kind of worked at the intersection of uh, technology and media uh, probably my my entire career. Um, I think I was actually the first editor of a newspaper in Africa who'd never worked on newspapers before when I became editor-in-chief of the Mail and Guardian. So digital is very close to my heart. Um, And I'm probably coming from a bit of a different place to to Nev in that I'm um, at Code for Africa. We we work with misinformation and disinformation in a variety of ways. The one way is that we um, run, I probably Africa's largest fact-checking organization in terms of uh, being in 12 countries called PACECheck, we run it out of East Africa. Um, and that organization uh, exists to refute misinformation and refute fake news. Um, then we have uh, another organization called, uh, or department called ILAB, um, which is more a kind of digital forensics lab, which looks at the kind of um, 
the accounts behind the fake news, you know, the networks behind the fake news. It tries to identify the source of fake news, who are the people benefiting from it, um, and then puts out reports, um, kind of out, you know, laying out the, the infrastructure of fake news. And, and we also then uh, partner with another organization here in our Cape Town office, which does a similar thing for, for Southern Africa. So I could go on a lot more, but I'm, I think I'll tease it out more during the conversation. But essentially, it's about you know, that nexus of what does ad fraud, fake news, misinformation, disinformation do to the economy um, of news? And how do we do something about it? So my name is Navar Das. I'm a partner at DYDX. And, and, do you, and, and similar to Chris, I've also had experience in publishing. Um, I was at Kahisa Media, um, started up the digital division there, and so was uh, responsible for MSN, the joint venture with MSN, plus a whole lot of other um, online platforms uh, for the radio stations and, and TV shows and things like that. And, and so I guess my interest in ad fraud as a topic comes from two things. The first is having been a publisher, understanding the, the commercial flows really well of how ads sold, you know, what the, what the value chain is. But secondly, from the work we've been doing at DYDX, where we work with large um, corporate marketing departments and help them optimize their process flows and optimize the way that they actually undertake the, the, the entire end-to-end -end marketing process, we're exposed to a lot of the experiences that marketers have when they're buying, um, they're buying media. And, and we're not media buyers or those kind of things, but we have a very good understanding of, of the structure and the flow. And for us, what's very interesting is that the topic of ad fraud comes in from a commercial impact, not just a disinformation impact, which I know is where we're kind of Chris and, and I kind of really, really meet up that this information is, is damaging to society, but, but from the commercial impact that marketers are paying way more than they need to be paying um, for the ads and for the eyeballs that they're meant to be to reaching and that there's a big overpromise in some areas in digital that we're not really matching up to. And yeah, and, and through this conversation, I think stuff that we'll impact over this, this kind of, the furthest conversation is really where, where the interest has come up into this industry. Okay, thanks guys for that intro. I think you've given perspective on the topic at hand today, which is ad fraud. And should we as South African in the advertising industry be concerned as to what's going on? Is it impacting us? And I know both of you mentioned the economic impact. Can we maybe discuss what is the social impact to this? So, there are a few social impacts. Um, the one is that it's destabilizing one of the pillars of democracy. Well, maybe two, if you want to count business as a pillar of democracy. But it's absolutely destabilizing media. And by that, I don't just mean, you know, media in a sense of newspapers and the death of print. I mean the actual ability of news organizations to do their job. So that's the one thing. Um, without good news provision, uh, democracies suffer. Well, all types of governments suffer, actually. Um, the other thing is that um, it's part of the prevailing attack on the notion of truth itself. So, you know, if, if, you, if, you're, if brands are associated 
with fake news sites. There's a kind of knock-on effect, which means that the brands themselves uh, suffer, but even more importantly, the idea of news itself suffers. You know, so if, if, if brands are and, and marketers are funding fake news, they're enabling fake news to outperform real news. And that means that people stop trusting the news and stop actually trusting the very notion of truth itself. And when that happens, you end up in, in the kind of bad place where America ended up with Trump. And uh, that is something which we do not want to happen. Lev, I think you probably have a more... Um, yeah, I, uh, just to expand on that. So, so I, think, I think we need to take a couple of steps back because everyone hears fake news and the assumption is that it's particularly mo politically motivated, that people always have political agendas when they're disseminating fake news. But the truth is that that's not really the case. What's been happening over the last, I would say, at least five or six years is that the ease with which um, publishers, and, and I use publishers in a very loose, they're, they're not really publishers a lot. Some of them are publishers that are just kind of looking for clickbait and, and easy clicks, but many of them are not even publishers. They're literally running sites, um, making up stories. They're basically gangsters using news articles um, that, that they do that to attract clicks because the ad system, the ad, uh, digital ad system has become so open and so easy with so much money in it that it's very easy to get paid for fake news. In fact, it's, it's now at the point where the estimates on ad fraud globally is $35 billion a year, which is a massive amount. And ad fraud from a financial point of view is considered to be higher than credit card frauds but credit cards obviously have far larger transaction volumes going through them and far more money going through that ecosystem. So we're seeing this massive issue uh, with disinformation and, and as part of the bigger ad fraud kind of discussion where because it's so easy to get paid through this um, online kind of publishing environment, it really makes sense for, for gangsters to say, well, what's a, what's a great scam? Let's put up fake news sites and let's put up crazy headlines, people will click on it, we'll have our publisher tags on that and Google and everyone else will just pay us, the ad networks will pay us for impressions served or clicks earned. And the fact that people are seeing these stories and thinking that they're real stories, because obviously they make these sites look real, they don't just kind of put up a you know Joe's blog with you know fake headline news and make it sound like it's a real news site. And because they do that, that actively funds disinformation. That's actually slightly different to governmental type disinformation, as stuff you might see from Russia or from other governments, which have got more of a political agenda. I mean, that, that does happen as well. That's also a very real thing. And that also generates income um, for those brands, for those, for those agencies, for those government agencies. But, but the more nefarious concept of it is the fact that it's so easy to put up a, a fake headline and get paid for it. You literally get rewarded for doing that. And that's where the threat to journalism comes from because that pushes down the cost per thousand, the CPM, or the cost per click that people are paying because these, you know, these sites don't really have real costs associated with them. They don't have journalists. They're not going on investigating news. They don't have somebody to validate the stories. You know, they're literally making it up. And because they've got a lower cost base and they just want to get the clicks at any, at any cost, and because people are buying programmatically, um, they're just putting lower CPMs down there. They're pushing down the CPM load overall 
and they're basically eking money out of the ecosystem that should be going towards news. You know, the, the, the audience wants news, but what they're getting actually is disinformation and the advertisers are paying for it. And from an advertiser point of view, your brand ends up next to, you know, some crazy story about COVID not being real or something else, which you have no control over because you've bought it all through a programmatic platform and they have put out your ad wherever the lowest cost per thousand is. So that's kind of the, the bigger component behind that. So yesterday, the Independent Online, um, which of course is a, a shell of a, of a newspaper because it's been gutted by its owner in many ways, but the Independent Online put out a story around um, tobacco industry. And in the story, they quoted a fake account, a fake Twitter account, which is set up pretending to be um, an account set up by tobacco smugglers. So a, an actual newspaper, an actual news um, organization is quoting fake, is quoting a disinformation um, account as proof of something in a story. And that's kind of the most dangerous nexus possible where the media itself starts publishing misinformation, disinformation, because they've been fooled themselves. I think that's, that's kind of the one um, scary example for me. The other one um, is that um, Senev's talking about how it doesn't always have to be polit uh, political um, disinformation or misinformation. It can be for revenue. It's when you put the two together and they become this kind of um, uh, double tag team that it becomes even more dangerous. For example, is the uh, puts the Africans first hashtag and, uh, and kind of a fake series of fake news sites where that is exploiting xenophobia purely to make money. Uh, and that was exposed by Code for Africa's uh, partner here in Cape Town called the DFR Lab. Um, so it's, it's, it's purely set up to make money, um, the fake account called Arato Pele. But then politicians like Herman Mashaba and um, other people who are invested in pushing uh, kind of a populist message jump onto that as if it's real. You know, so then you have, have this kind of double whammy of it being a, both a politically injurious um, message, but also a revenue-generating message. So the two kind of feed off each other and feed each other, which is terrible. Yes, I agree. We can acknowledge this is a chronic issue. The real question is, what are big publishers like Facebook and Google doing to manage or contain the situation? So I think, firstly, Google and Facebook are not publishers. Um, they very clearly make, you know, they're kind of in this in-between world that we've now created where they are either marketplaces or social networks that have created a new definition uh, for themselves so, so that they don't fall under the, the old publisher, the old kind of fourth estate rules. Mm. Um, both have policies that they have kind of put in place, but in truth, it's very hard or very inefficient for them to police their policies, right? So they're not not as actively police as you would like. Um, and, and I know of a number of incidents, one in particular around ad fraud, where there were complaints put to their policy team and it was a black hole for three or four months and then you get something back and then nothing happens. And, and it, so it generally feels like it's very weakly policed, um, which is one of the big challenges you've got. So I think the, the short answer would be they're not doing enough. Um, don't forget that they get paid no matter what happens, right? So they're getting their 40% cut, um, you know, depending on what, you know, if you, and, and it's more of a Google problem than probably a Facebook problem. 
and it's really an ad network problem. Um, so, so they're getting their cut no matter what happens because they get 40% of all those ad dollars. So they're not necessarily incentivized to stop it as much as they should be. Uh, I'm sure there are people there that want to stop it, uh, but, but it's not really happening. So, so that, that for me would be the one, the one component. Mm -hmm. But it's not just a Google and Facebook problem. You know, it's, it's all the ad networks. In fact, some of the smaller ad networks might be more at risk than the Googles and Facebooks. Um, you know, Xander's had issues. Like they've all had issues. The Media Maths has, has come out with some stuff recently. So they're all looking at and trying to find a way to solve it. But it's not happening fast enough and it's not happening with enough focus because at the end of the day, they get their money anyway, and the advertiser is the one that's paying, and society is the one that's suffering. So, you know, they're just, you know, it, it's just not their number one focus. Let's put it that way. And uh, I mean, uh, I have a slightly different answer, which comes to the same conclusion, I'm afraid. Um, so, the art being, the art trying to do something. So, for example, Code for Africa's fact checking organization, PacerCheck, um, takes down 200. Um, I guess, misinformation stories a month for Facebook from um, in, in the East African region. Um, but as you can appreciate, 200 a month is probably just a, a small uh, number of, a small amount of the actual uh, fake news stories that are out there. So, that, so that there is that. And, and then they, so they fund um, fact-checking organizations um, across the world to do that. But, you know, taking down bits of fake news is not the same as... Um, taking down accounts, um, which is a, a much larger issue. So, but I think Nev is correct. Like they aren't doing enough, um, whether they can do enough and still, um, and still maintain the current business model is, is I suppose the open question. You know, for me, it's also a question of economics, right? If, you know, and, and I'd be quite curious to see what the economic investment is in stopping the fake news problem or the disinformation or the ad fraud problem is compared to the amount of revenue that it generates for them. And are those, are those economics matching up, right? Are they kind of going, looking and saying, okay, we're gonna spend every cent that we make out of ad fraud to try and stop ad fraud? Or are they saying like, ah, you know, we'll spend, send a percentage that seems significant, but isn't really. It's like oil companies, right? There's a big spool, how much do they really spend in you know cleaning up the spill or trying to fix the spill before it happens versus you know the other revenues you make in they're making areas that could create spills for me, for me it's that kind of economic uh argument that we need to look at or how much do oil companies kind of you know spend back you know by giving money to wwf while they're making billions out of destroying natural habitats um so, so it's those kind of i think social questions we have to ask of these companies of what are they doing to stop the problem and is it is it equal in size to the amount of money that's generating from creating the problem? Do you think that there's enough education and transparency around this issue? Definitely not. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's not a I think there's growing attention, right? So we're starting to see more and more pressure being put on the ad networks. And like and I think Google and Facebook take the brunt of it because they're the biggest ones, but they're not the only players. And I think it should be a broader sectoral issue. Um, but there's not enough. I mean, the, the latest PwC study, and, and this is a little bit more just on, on focus on the ad fraud side. Um, if you look at that, the PwC did with um, with the UK Publishers Organization, mm -hmm. 
was really revealing where they said that 15% of um, money spent on digital advertising could not be matched back to, to anything, to publishers or anything else like that. So if you look at the uh, waterfall of how the money, you know, the percentage of money that went from advertiser and actually reached media owner, only half that money reached the media owner um, or less than half the money reached the media owner the tech tax in the middle, you know, so the amount you pay to Google's or the Facebook's or other ad networks um, was taking up the bulk of that, even though it's only meant to take up around 35 to 40% um, of that uh, component, which is still very high, by the way, and it's still a very, very expensive sales channel. It's more expensive than having your own direct sales teams, but, but the world has changed. Um, from a publisher point of view, what was happening is, and from an advertiser point of view, there's this 15% that is being paid for, which doesn't seem to get impressions served up for it. And that's the big question that's really happening now. So what has happened to this 15% um, that is structurally put into the process? Now, this isn't necessarily an, a, a disinformation challenge alone. This is a broader ad fraud problem because at the end of the day, there should be high transparency in the process that allows you to see exactly where your money has gone. And it isn't really that transparent. If you cannot match transactions, this was a big study done over a year, then you've got a bigger issue in the ecosystem. And you know that there's lots of little holes that, that things are, are kind of falling out of, out of. I think one of the ironic things is that in the earlier days of digital, uh, we would say that unlike wasting your money on print ads, we have no idea who's looking at it, if they even see it, what, you know, what the impact is. With digital, we can accurately tell you that somebody has seen your ad and whether they clicked on it. Um, it appears that's kind of reversed in a sense, which is, you know, slightly ironic. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but but Chris makes a good point, and I, and I, and I think it's an interesting perspective. I, I remember, like, I think it was 10 or 11 years ago, I wrote a book called Starving at the Feast because I was at a media company, and it was all about how there's more media being bought than ever before and more eyeballs on media, but media companies are dying and starving because they just don't know how to monetize it effectively and how programmatic will shift that and why it's better because you're just buying a person that you want to reach. You don't have to buy a context, which is a newspaper, right? But 10 or 11 years ago, we didn't have the problem we have today. 10 or 11 years ago, what Roper is discussing was accurate because when you bought a newspaper, there was all these weird circulation numbers and things like that that you had, which weren't necessarily real. You know, you didn't know if it was real or not. Readership versus circulation. It was all estimates and guesstimates. It was very phased. It was very fuzzy. Um, and digital was actually quite accurate. There was a lot more accuracy in the digital components because there were fewer players in the game. There were fewer ad networks. The technology was simpler. So it's easier to attribute um, you know, click to somebody actually seeing it. There weren't bots because it was very hard for anyone else to kind of swoop in and monetize the system. But as programmatic display really grew and, 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 and took, took hold, what you saw was this real kind of separation coming out as people try to make programmatic very smart. But the truth is the data layers are still obtuse and still don't speak to each other very well. And suddenly bots came up and other technologies came up. And that whole idea of, oh, I know what I'm paying for has really gone, well, I kind of know what I'm paying for, but it might not be as accurate as I think it is, uh, you know, when you start looking at it from, from these ad networks. And, and that's been a significant shift. And the funny thing is that because the, the, the revenues achieved 
for online ads from the New York Times and all these other institutions have been so low because CPMs have been pushed down so low, they've all gone behind firewalls, right? They've all gone behind paywalls. So now if I am looking at a New York Times or if I'm a reader of a subscription, um, even if it's an email subscription and it's free, but there's a paywall or some kind of subscription wall to the, the news site, that is more likely, like it's 100% likely to be a real viewer and I'm actually getting money for my click versus what is the open web nowadays because CPMs are lower, but I'm unlikely to get the person. And I think that for me is kind of, in some ways, kind of funny uh, because you wouldn't have expected that to have happened 10 years ago, but it's kind of switched around now. This topic is getting heated. Let's cool off with a quick break. Hashtag no filter. That's how this podcast is delivering real down-to-earth stories told by real people. For an influencer campaign that takes brand conversation to everyday real-life situations, go check out thesalt.co.za. They are the undisputed experts in real influencer marketing. Welcome back. Let's keep this conversation going. Nev, you make a valid point, and let's look at how digital campaigns or digital marketing has transformed in the last 10 years, where we were just using it as part of our channel or platform mix in terms of just... Um, doing the same thing we did with traditional versus digital. I mean, what is the the ad spend in South Africa for digital now? It's between 20 and 30% of your total digital media spend. Um, And how much of that's going into programmatic, into that 15% unknown delta? So I don't think, I think you, both of you are right. Advertisers actually don't actually understand the um, the impact of what's happening, you know, behind that media spend. We're still chasing after um, CPMs, whereas we're not buying quality media. So I think with time, even with the removal of third-party cookies um, that's coming up next year, we're still going to see a transition to people maybe uh, buying more quality media, start asking media agencies the right questions and putting together some type of measurement scorecards. Um, and, I, and I think it's that taking of control from the advertisers because previously it was a dependency and trust on your media agency doing all of that work for you. And now what both of you are saying is maybe advertisers need to dig deeper and ask the right questions from the system. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think advertisers need to do a number of things. Firstly, I think they should be demanding that that they know that the sites they're going they're being put on a brand safe, right? And they should be demanding that their media buyers are doing that. That that for me would be number one. It's probably more important than your CPM is is your brand safety components. And what are the what are the media buyers doing there? What are your agencies doing to ensure your brand safety? That for me would be no- the number one issue that, that that advertisers could do and then i think yeah maybe when third-party cookies get removed that that will clear some of that that confusion up or some of the these things up i'm not 100 percent convinced that will have the impact we think it will um but i think that that we'll see as, as kind of time shakes up there um and and looking for more quality metrics i think one of the quality metrics uh, might be to resuscitate something from the kind of old traditional media days of advertising, which is the quality of reader. Um, so I think you know, uh, media brands used to sell advertising based on who you could reach 
and that who you could reach was a reader that was basically created by the news brand in its own image. I think that's something we need to move back towards as well, um, where you don't just, you know, spray your ads out to a whole bunch of different um, sites based on kind of these very uh, structured demographics. You actually want to base, base your advertising push on who that site is because you know that that site has created a reader which is you know, dependable. It's not just about how much can they spend. It's whether they can understand the difference between truth and untruths. I mean, that's the kind of thing brands need to be, to be looking at. Yeah, Chris, you mentioned um, you know, earlier in the conversation in terms of um, journalism and where that's going and some of the issues journalists are finding in terms of uh, that trust factor and how do you get good content um, and, and, you know, differentiated from fake news. What are some of the things that journalists can do to create more awareness? Because I think that's also important um, that we can see their plight and, and look for recommendations going forward. So some of the things that um, journalism suffers from are not just kind of um, manually created misinformation, and also um, kind of targeted um, misinformation uh, campaigns designed to attack journalists you know, around things like um, white monarchy capital and that kind of thing, the kind of Bell-Pottinger thing. Um, they also, we need to get a much firmer grasp on the data ecosystem of journalism. You know, how, the, how the algorithms are, are working, um, how algorithms are pushing people to different kinds of news. Um, that's one of the one of the great risks. I think that media companies don't understand how much they are, um, you know, the prey of of algorithms. Um, I almost want to make up the term "big algorithm," but that sounds a bit silly. <laughs> but, just, but but on a more kind of mundane note, I think you know the massive missing piece in journalism is resources. So journalists know what to do to push truth. That's the age-old job of journalism. It's just that if you're fighting against people who have way, way bigger budgets than you do to push um, misinformation, then it's an unequal battle. Um, so that is the first thing, to try and level those playing fields. I mean, Chinese misinformation, you know, the, the way uh, Chinese um, um, money is being used to prop up independent, for example, which allows the Chinese government to just push their, their, their messages um, on the front pages of one of our major newspaper groups. That is something that other, news, other media companies cannot possibly compete against, you know, because nobody, nobody really pays, pays you to push truth. You're making the money by pushing misinformation. Um, so that's, for me, that's the prime, prime issue. How do we fix the business model? The question is, how can government get involved or should government get involved in driving a more regulated environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, my commercial view of these things, I guess, is that government is a very dangerous tool uh, and regulations aren't necessarily, don't necessarily always achieve the outcomes you think they will. Um, so, so, so regulation should be used sparingly and, and with, you know, great trepidation. Um, I do think, though, we have a very unfair playing field. So I would start out with just saying, how do we make sure that we have a commercially fair playing field between the ad networks and um, the you know, social media platforms 
that are, are taking advertising spend, so African advertising spend and externalizing it to international companies. And yet those international companies have much fewer restrictions. They don't have the competition commission. They don't have any ombudsman. They don't have any kind of regulatory controls or government controls, yet they take out more money from the ecosystem. And the reason why I say this is dangerous uh, territory to play with is we just saw that happen in France and Spain with Google, where France and Spain put a 2% digital like, surcharge uh, on, on digital spend uh, for, com- for, for spend that's leaving the country. And all that Google did is just charge their clients 2% more. So if you're a client in Spain and Portugal, I think Switzerland as well, you now just... Um, France, sorry, France, Spain, Switzerland, I think a couple of other countries, you now basically pay 2% additional on top of whatever your media buy is because the French government has basically levied a, a fee on, on Google and Facebook and those companies. Though, funny enough, even though they all take their, their revenues and aggregate them up in Ireland, uh, and Ireland gets the tax revenue from uh, Google and Facebook for the European uh, zone, people in Ireland don't pay more for Google ads than people in France used to. So, so I think that the challenge with regulation is you're dealing with very strong monopolies, which are international and to try and regulate it commercially and and trying to get the, you know, you have to get the the playing field somehow leveled and and figure out what that is. And part of that could just be trying to make them comply with your current legislation and make them comply with the laws you have in the land at the moment or really, or easing up some laws that you have on media company so they can compete more more easily. So I, think, I think that's that's the one level. I think that second level, and I think the most relevant level is is more more marketers demanding better quality from their ad platforms. You know, at the end of the day, they only make money because marketers spend money with them. This isn't anyone else's job to try and manage this, I think. I think to try and to push it out to government and say, okay, government must deal with this is a little bit disingenuous where the marketers and the ad agencies have the power to stop this. It's within their control. Um, but they're just not, you know, up to now, haven't been wanting to do it. And I think that comes to your transparency and education issue earlier on, Audrey, that you don't know what the impact is. So you're not demanding more. You're not demanding better from these platforms. And so they carry on because at the end of the day, you're the customers and you're the ones that are paying for this and you're happy with this level of service um, or, you know, with and, and the, the, the impacts of it. So, so I think that for me feels like maybe another route to go before we try and get governments involved uh, because inevitably they do a bad job of it. Yeah, but I think what I'm trying to say is that maybe it's not a responsibility of one party or stakeholder in the industry Um you know, we need we need all of us to collaborate and come together with a solution going forward. But um, I think it's going to be a long time before we get there. But we can actually start to create that awareness, and maybe advertisers need to take that uh, first step forward and start to ask the questions that you mentioned. Yeah, and, and demanding better answers. Sorry, go. Ahead. I, I would uh, I would say you never want to get government involved in the regulation of the freedom of the press and anything that drives the freedom of the press. I mean, it is tempting. So in France, I think uh, July last year, they passed a law which um, says that you get a tax credit 
anybody who, buy, who, who subscribes to a newspaper or news magazine gets a, a tax credit, um, just tax deductible. Um, so, you know, one's always tempted to think of those kinds of uh, interventions. But the broad answer is, is always going to be, you know, you don't want to get government involved in um, kind of trying to resource um, the fourth state. Yeah. Mm. It, it's, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous right. I, I, th I, think, I think ideally it should be dealt with as an industry body because at the end of the day, it has a commercial impact, right? Yeah. It's, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's the, the marketers and the advertisers that are paying for this. And the consumers that are paying for it because they're just paying more for their their ad spend, and, and I think that's the that's and the I, uh, yeah yeah. Right. And I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily a, a critique or criticism of our current government. Um, it's just saying that if you put mechanisms in place that potentially can be exploited, you know who knows what's going to happen in thirty years time. Uh, you know that's that's the issue. We can't uh, have any chinks in the armor. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned industry bodies. With uh, with somebody like um, IB be more active. Yeah, I, I think the IB should definitely be more active. Um, you know that that for me is is a, is a good body to to start taking this forward and, and and to push this this agenda, and and to try create new standards that um, that people need to spend on their ad spend. It, again, like just hearing the stories that, that I do here, working with, with large marketers on things that happen from billing errors on their account, from the big kind of players like Google, that, you know, agencies don't pick up on and, and they're still paying for it. Like there's a lot of stuff that happens. These are not infallible businesses that, that you know, there are, there are large corporate businesses that, that in many ways, I think, do exert some level of monopoly power now. And unless the industry kind of has stricter management, you know, their own processes and their own demands, you'll be managed by your tech platforms. And I think that's kind of what's what we're seeing, that that's the impact what we have. So I think if you want to find ad forward and you want to make sure that you're in a, you're in a strong position as an industry and as marketers, and you have to come up with your own level of standards, you have to push those forward to say this is what we'd actually like to see because we see these other issues and be far more proactive about it in putting those out in the marketplace. Uh, Nev, let's be honest. I mean, how many marketers can actually ask the right questions? Probably very few. Exactly. Um, so it's easier to trust the system. <laughs> yeah. But let's be even more honest. Like how many agencies are incentivized to ask the rest the right questions, and and if you kind of look at it from that level, then you take it to a, a, a you know regulatory level. You know, regulatory regulators have no chance of understanding this problem, um, and and so I think yeah, it's it, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing. But the IEB has lots of very smart people on it, and if you look what's happening in the UK in the IEB and other things, you know, there's a lot of intelligence out there. It just hasn't been spoken about enough and made enough of an issue. I think this podcast is great because of that, because we're bringing something to, to hopefully people's attention that is really going to make a significant impact you know, if, if they take action on it. I think that, that for me, is, is what we need to do. We have to educate people that this is a problem. I mean, another hard question could be, does algorithmically driven programmatic advertising even work? 
I, I, I do think that <laughs> I think that might be going, you know, a step too far. I think there's there's a lot of a lot of elements where we can see that it works, especially from a remarketing and retargeting perspective. Um, you know, definitely having done lots of campaigns, there, there's definitely it does work. It's not that it doesn't work. It's not like that it's a sham. Um, the question is, what is the wastage on it, and are we happy with the social impact? that it comes out of having this such an open system. You don't have to switch off programmatic. You don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I don't think that's the answer. The answer is saying, are the, the platforms spending enough money to get rid of this information? Are they spending enough money to get rid of ad fraud? Um, are marketers willing to pay, happy to carry on paying for fake clicks and for ad fraud? It doesn't have to be a huge amount that you, know, that you, you have, but there's some really interesting stories with companies like Uber um, that have pushed back on their agencies and ad networks against ad fraud and demanded their money back in, in the tens of millions of dollars uh, for fake installs and fake attribution for installs that weren't real real customers that they had paid for. Um, so, so I think that for me are, are the, the tangible things that marketers could do. They could say, right, if you know, I wanna be able to audit your um, programmatic buys after the fact and if any of these sites are not brand safe or you know some of these are deemed to have been bots or something else like that then i demand a refund from the network you know maybe networks will change their behaviors then um you know these are all things that that, that are, are coming out of the wash right now but unless the marketers are are aware that they're actually creating the environment they're the ones spending the money into the environment the environment will just do whatever it needs to to you know to kind of take as much money as they can out of the system versus try and create a system which has fewer externalities like we have at the moment. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Nev. I mean, uh, we need more Uber brands in South Africa because Uber's, I mean, sued about 100 mobile exchanges for fraud. So, yeah. I mean, we need more people to stand up and start ch challenging um, you know, these exchanges, that the ad exchanges, for example. So in closing, guys, what would you like to leave our listeners with? I just want to echo what you've said, Audrey. Um, this is everybody's problem and everybody has to be part of the solution. And that stretches from, you know, um, marketers, um, people responsible for ad tech, the media and, and citizens. Um, we're specifically talking about ad tech fraud right now, but this is just one symptom of a larger problem we have with this information and trust, and it is everybody's problem. Yeah, um, I think from my side, it's, I guess, kind of spiraling back up to the top that marketers need to exert their, their importance in the ecosystem more. Um, and, and their power more to demand a better quality of ad product because they need to understand that be, because programmatic and technology is now so broad and so far out of their control, a lot of the time their money is going to unintended uh, kind of has unintended consequences such as disinformation, which I think is you know probably the biggest uh, crime there is at the moment because of the impact on society. And then secondly, because of the impact it has just purely on their own bottom line due to ad fraud and, and just the um, 
I guess, underperforming ad units and maybe acquiring um, because of that. But but uh, but I think marketers need to take some con- some control of this, and it could be through an IAB, and it should be with agencies, and and demand better of these ad networks and the tech and the tech net and the tech platforms that they're using. So I think that that for me is a primary thing: demand better. I agree. So, uh, Chris and Nev, thank you so much for making the time today. I mean, this was a really stimulating conversation. I would urge people in the industry to listen and maybe start doing something from a local perspective because this is not only a global issue, it affects all of us in the ad industry. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Audrey. Thanks, Audrey. Okay, bye. We're excited. You're excited. I really value and appreciate your support during this time. Helping decision makers navigate the change and to keep some change in their pockets. Don't forget to subscribe. Follow our Instagram handle at talkdigitalza. Engage us on our website at talkdigitalza.co.za. And who knows, you could be featuring on the next one. This podcast series has been made possible by The Salt, the influencer company that turns influence into affluence. In the same way that information is presented in this podcast in a relatable and authentic way, The Salt gets your customers to tell their real brand stories to their community. Go to thesalt.co.za to learn more about how The Salt can help you grow your business.